Welcome to the seventh episode of Folklore, Fairy Tales and Food. We'll follow the same format as always. First there'll be the story, then some discussion about some elements of the story, and then today's recipe. Today's story is The Fish and the Ring, as recorded in Joseph Jacob's English Fairy Tales. Once upon a time, and at a time before that, there was a mighty baron in the North Country, who was a great magician and knew everything was going to happen in the future. One day, when his little boy was four years old, he looked into the Book of Fate to see what would happen to him, and to his dismay he found out his son would wed a peasant girl who had been born in the house under the shadow of York Minster. Now, the Baron knew the father of the little girl was very, very poor, and that he'd got five children already, so he called for his horse and rode into York and passed by the father's house and saw him sitting by the door looking very sad. What's the matter, my good man? Well, Your Honour, said the man sadly, I've got five children already, and now a sixth one has come along, a little girl, and I don't know where to find the bread from to feed the ones I've already got. Don't be downhearted, my man, said the Baron. If that's your trouble, I can help you. I'll take away the last little one, when you won't have to bother about her. Thank you kindly, sir, said the man, and he went in and brought out the little girl and gave her to the baron. He mounted his horse and rode away with her. And when he got to the by the rank of the river Ouse, he threw the little thing into the river and rode off to the castle. Without giving her another thought, it seems that all those horrible things you've heard about barons definitely are true in his case. But you'll be pleased to know the little girl did not sink. Her clothes kept her up for a time, and she floated and she floated till she was cast ashore in front of a fisherman's hut. There the fisherman found her and took pity on the poor little thing and took her into his house. And his wife agreed that she would live with them and they would bring her up. So years went past. And now the fisherman's daughter, who wasn't really the fisherman's daughter, had grown up to be a lovely young woman. In the way of stories, it just so happened that the baron went out hunting with some companions along the banks of the River Ouse and they stopped at the fisherman's hut to get a drink and the girl came out to give it to them. They all noticed how beautiful she was, and one of them said to the Baron, You can read fates, Baron. Whom do you think she'll marry? Oh, I don't think you need to look that far into the future to see that, said the Baron. She'll marry some yokel yokel or another fisherman's son. But we've got some time. I'll cast her horoscope. Come here, girl. Tell me on what day you were born. I don't know, sir, said the girl. I was picked up just here, after being brought down the river. The Baron realised who she must be and quick-wittedly decided on a course of action. When he and his companions went away, he turned around and rode back and said to the girl, Girl, I will make your fortune. Take this letter to my brother in Scarborough, and you'll be settled for life. And the girl was happy to go. Now, she might not have been when she saw what was written in the letter. Inside it said, Dear brother, take the bearer, and put her to death immediately. Yours affectionately, William. The girl, whose name was Aelith, set off for Scarborough, unaware of the wicked plot. She slept for a night at a little inn on the road. And in that night a band of robbers broke into the inn. 
They searched her baggage and found she had nothing of any worth, except the letter. So, being robbers and not worried about anyone's privacy, they opened it. They thought it was a terrible shame, as the girl, Alice, clearly didn't know what was in the letter. So, the robber, who was not, shall we say, loyal to the Baron, decided that he would change the story. He took pen and paper, which were very luckily very similar to the ones the Baron had written on, and wrote a similarly short note. But this one said, Dear brother, take the bearer and marry her to my son immediately. Yours affectionately, William. Alice did not know this had happened, as she'd been hiding in the back of the inn with the innkeeper and his wife. She just assumed that they hadn't taken anything because she didn't have anything. So she went on to the Baron's brother at Scarborough, an important knight with whom the Baron's son was staying. When she handed over the letter, the Baron's brother was a little surprised, but he went ahead with the preparations for the wedding, and they were married that very day. Alice was also a little surprised, but how often do you get to marry a Baron's son? So she went along with it. Weddings are so often the end of the story, but not in this case. Soon after the wedding, the Baron himself arrived at the castle and was very surprised to find out that everything he had tried to stop had actually come to pass. Not a man to be put off. He took Alys for a walk along the cliffs. Or so he said. As soon as they were all alone, he took her by the arms and was going to throw her over. But she begged hard for her life. I haven't done anything, she said. If you'll only spare me, I'll do whatever you wish. I'll never see you or your son again until you desire it. The Baron then took off his gold ring and threw it into the sea, saying, never let me see your face until you can show me that ring. And he let her go. Poor Alice wandered on and on in desperation, trying to find work until at last she came to a great noble's castle and they made her the scullion girl of the castle which she didn't mind so much because she'd been used to such work in the fisherman's hut. And things carried on like this for some months. Now one day, who should you see coming up to the noble's house but the baron and his brother and his son, her husband? She didn't know what to do, but she guessed they wouldn't be coming into the kitchen of the castle, so she went and hid and carried on with her work. Now it just so happened that a big fish was to be boiled for dinner and her job was to clean it, so she carried on. Suddenly, she saw something inside the fish gleam and shine as it caught the light. Can you guess what it was? Yes, you're right. It's the ring that the Baron threw from the cliffs. Alice had never been so happy, so she cooked the fish as nicely as she could and placed it on the serving platter. When the fish came to the table, the guests liked it so much that they asked the noble who had cooked it. He said he didn't know, obviously. So he called to his servants and told them to send up the cooks that cooked the fine fish. And they went down to the kitchen and told the girl she was wanted in the hall. So she washed and tidied herself, put the baron's gold ring on her thumb and went up to the hall. When the guests saw such a young and beautiful cook, they were very surprised. But the baron was not just surprised, he was furious and he started up as if he had do some violence. So Alice went up to him, with her hands stretched out, the ring clearly visible on her palm. She then placed it before the Baron. 
Then at last the Baron saw that no one could fight against fate, and he handed her to a seat and announced to all the company that this was his son's true wife. And he took her and his son home to his castle, and they all lived as happily ever after. Well, as happily as possible. And that is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you, gentle listener, for it had no other purpose. If you're just here for the story, now is probably a good time to leave us. But if you'd like to know a little bit about where this story comes from, and quite a lot of history about fish pie, then we'll carry on. This is the shortest story I've told this far, and it appears to be quite a simple tale. There is, however, a long and more complex story behind the folklore. The story was collected in print first in 1866 by William Henderson in Notes on the Folklore of the Northern Counties of England and the Borders, and it then appeared in Joseph Jacobs' collection English Folk Tales in 1890. There were some very specific elements of the tale which would seem to date its first telling. Barons did not exist, definitely not with that title, until after the Norman invasion in 1066. Although Scarborough Castle has a very long history, there was only really one period after 1066 where it could be considered to be a private residence, and that's between 1308 and 1348. Henry, Lord Percy, previously Baron de Percy, lived there during that time with the permission of the king, and he had a brother who was also in Yorkshire. And there is some mystery why he did not inherit. Though never libel or slander an unknown baron, William de Percy, but maybe the rumours of his apparent magical abilities are at the root of his disgrace. I've used his name William in my story, for it added frison. The origins of the story are somewhat older than the telling. It's a story of two parts, before and after the marriage. The first part is very similar to several European folk tales, Hungarian, Swedish and German, and a Mongolian tale. The English version is the only one, however, where the poor child is female. The German story, The Devil with the Three Golden Hairs, is the one that most closely resembles the English tale, with the king taking the place of the baron. The letter changeover by the thieves is the same, though. The second part of the English story is where it demonstrates its age. The root of this part can be seen as far back as the story of Polycrates, as told by Herodotus. Herodotus died in roughly 425 BCE, so that's some history. There are also similar versions in A Thousand and One Nights. It's also suggested that there's a mystical significance to the plot device of the fish and the ring. The ring descends into darkness and is brought back into light, symbolising the sun's overnight journey. I think it'd be quite a stretch to link that to the English version, so I'll just leave it there. I don't think this story is linked to the Norwegian story of the ring and the fish, which highlights the perils of tempting fate. The English tale is clearly demonstrating that you can't change your fate. It's also possible that the device of discovering a ring in a fish was influenced by the tale of the faithless Queen Langweth in the life of Kentigern. I'll put a link in the show notes to both the life of Kentigern as well as the Herodotus, both translations. You might be interested in finding out what happened. Right, time for that food history I promised you. You might have noticed there was actual cooking in this tale. I do slightly resent the fact that everyone was so amazed that a great cook could be young and beautiful, but I think I've got over it. Alice did also seem to be promoted fairly swiftly from scullery maid to cook, but perhaps the labour market was faster moving in those days. The coastal location of the story is key to the fish being served. Medieval inland dwellers wouldn't have eaten much fresh fish if at all, as it spoils so quickly. They would have resorted to quite muddy-tasting river fish, all salted, all pickled fish. The church had many fast days, at least three a week where meat was forbidden, so fish was the only option. 
That is, if you don't stretch your definition of fish to include dolphins, puffins, porpoise, beavers' tails and barnacle geese. Just don't ask about that last one. But I mustn't get sidetracked by barnacle geese. We've more important things to concentrate on. Fish pie is the subject for our interrogation this week. I tried looking at just perfect baked fish, but in all honesty, not much has changed since medieval times. We just don't overcook it as much now. Fish pie has changed dramatically, on the other hand. This research took me more time than anything else on the podcast, including reading the life of Kentigern. Sadly, it can be summed up in several sentences. But I hope you enjoy. The only similarity that medieval fish pie and the one we consider to be the definitive version is fish. It isn't even the same fish, really. As discussed, most inland dwellers only had access to river fish or preserved fish, so most of the early recipes were for eel or herring. The oily flesh made it good for pickling. I have a recipe from 1631. I know it's not medieval, but this was the earliest recipe I could access. And it has a pastry coffin, probably not meant to be eaten. Pickled herrings, sliced pears, raisins, currants, cinnamon, sugar, dates. And it's finished afterwards with a finishing liquid of boiled claret, verjuice, sugar, cinnamon and butter. If you ignore the pastry, it has a lot in common with a Venetian dish, sade in saur, which came about as a way of preserving fish on board sailing vessels, which travel between Venice and the Far East, utilising spices they had on board, as well as vinegar and honey. The first mention of fish pie, as opposed to recipes for specific fish, was in 1725, and I have a recipe here from The Complete Cook in 1773. It's also the same in the 1734 edition, but it's not so clear to read. We've lost the inedible coffin by now, and replaced it with puff pastry. The pears, sugar, and other dried fruits have also disappeared, although we do have pickled barberries. The fish is no longer pickled, and we now have force meat stuffing, balls made from the fish trimmings, boiled egg yolks and lemon slices. The spices have remained, but the oyster liquor and white wine thickened with eggs and butter to be poured in after baking is much more to come modern tastes. A lot has changed in just over a hundred years. Things don't change much for a while after that though, but we do start to see fish being cooked with bechamel around the middle of the 19th century, and then examples of fish, fish gravy and pastry towards the end of the century. In 1895, there's a recipe in Mrs. Wilkinson's cookbook for fish pie containing fish mixed with bechamel sauce and topped with breadcrumbs. And in playing cookery recipes as taught in school, which is also in 1895, there's a first mention I could find of a mashed potato topping. Then finally, in 1907, in the Polytechnic cookery book, I found a recipe which is really similar to the standard definition of modern fish pie, containing mixed fish, bechamel-style sauce, boiled eggs and mashed potato topping. It's not clear when smoked fish started to be added. I suspect it might have been during the war when fish wasn't rationed, but smoked fish had a much stronger shelf life, which improved availability. Potatoes also weren't rationed, so this might have been the point that it became the most popular topping. A lot of this is conjecture, because it's harder for me to track down changes, as many cookbooks from this period are still in copyright and haven't yet been digitised. For the recipe this week, I have gone for a, what we should say, traditional but with luxury items, fish pie. It's really lovely. Very comforting. I've used a mixture of cod, smoked haddock, salmon and prawns. But you can change those elements. For fish, you enjoy more. However, I would definitely keep the smoky element if you can. It really makes the dish. You can leave the prawns out altogether, though, if they're not your thing. My last piece of advice for today would be definitely use the right size dish for it, though. The first time I made it, I made it in too small a dish, 
was overconfident and ended up with half of my fish pie on the floor of my oven. I don't really want to talk about the cleaning involved, but it's probably good to learn from my mistake. The link to the recipe is in the show notes, or you can navigate directly there by going to www.hestierskitchen.co.uk. If you'd also like to see some of those old recipes, maybe you'd even like to recreate one, then they are also on the blog post. There's also a lot of further reading in the form of many historic cookbooks you might also find interesting. We're nearly at the end of the episode, but I would like to ask, it does feel quite cheeky, but if you've enjoyed this episode, I wonder if you wouldn't mind reviewing it in the place where you got the podcast from. It helps other people find the podcast, so it'd be really helpful. And that is the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening to Folklore, Fairy Tales and Food. And listen out next week for another episode.